Welcome to the September 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name's Colin Yeo. Now, this month, we're going to try something slightly different. And um, CJ, my colleague, is joining me on the line so that we can try and do this in a slightly more conversational style than normal. So we're going to be talking a bit about deprivation of citizenship. We're going to move on to cover some Brexit material. Um, We're also going to talk about a few wider immigration policy issues and um, where the government has sort of finally started to reveal its direction of travel. There's a little bit less case law to cover than usual, but we do have a couple of interesting decisions and um, a few things on refugees and refugee family reunion. Okay, CJ. Yeah, thanks for having me, Colin. Um, The first case I think we wanted to talk about was a new decision of the Court of Appeal in uh, FAM and Secretary of State for the Home Department 2018 EWCA Civ 2064. Um, So this was the one about um, Mr. Pham came to the UK from Vietnam at the age of six. He became a British citizen um, as a young boy, but as an adult, he was radicalised and and convicted of some nasty terrorism offences in Yemen. So I think, uh, Colin, as I understand the case, it was about whether his he could be deprived of his British citizenship. And then it kind of went broadly, more broadly into a discussion of what British citizenship is all about. Yeah, it's it's quite an interesting case because this is the kind of um, second run, I suppose, that he's had at the court system. So the, the first time around, he went all the way up to the Supreme Court in an earlier decision. And then it's gone back down to SEAC. That's the Special Immigration Appeals Commission, which is the it's, it's like the Immigration Tribunal, but basically for national security issues. And they've got a kind of um, a process where there can be secret evidence and so on in, in, in SEAC. And um, this was the appeal against um, deprivation of citizenship um, proceedings in, in SEAC. So it goes up to the Court of Appeal again. Whether this goes even further and back up to the Supreme Court again, who only knows? We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but it's it's quite an interesting case because the, the background is interesting. You know, this whole issue of what does it mean to be British and what does it say about being British when that Britishness is taken away from you and the Home Office points its finger, waves its magic deprivation wand, serves you with the papers and says, you're not fit to be British anymore and we're, we're stopping you from being British. And um, I don't know, in, in, the, in, the, in my write-up of this, I think it's a bit of a shame, really, that the Court of Appeal hasn't done a bit more with what are really meaty issues about belonging and loyalty and 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 just modern British citizenshipness, so to speak. Um, so the the background to this is all about the deprivation power. So if you um, become British, or even if you were born British, now you can be deprived of that British citizenship. And um, this is a case where you know that that exactly that process has been initiated. The test now, since two thousand and six, is um, it's, it's the same words as we use in deprivation cases. Sorry, in, in deportation cases. So it's whether it's conducive to the public good in the in the opinion of the Secretary of State. And one of the things that we look in the, look at in the blog, blog post is how that has that test has changed over the years. So. It was a kind of um, loyalty test in previous years. It was then amended to a doing anything seriously prejudicial to the interests of the United Kingdom test. And then it was modified down again to the current one of conducive to the public good. And so it's much easier now for the government to deprive somebody of their British citizenship than it used to be, at least if they are naturalised as British and if they won't be made stateless. 
it's it's slightly different if you haven't been naturalized or if you're if you are going to be stateless there are a, a slightly higher test basically um but um yeah and it's it's a, it's a strange case in some ways because given what he'd done and what he had admit admitted doing by this point and in fact i think he'd been convicted in the united states having admitted various different terrorism type activity yeah it was al-qaeda and all sorts it, it sounded like you know if ever there was a case of conducive to the public good he he maybe fit that test quite easily well exactly I and mean, you, you you do wonder about the the underlying strength of his case here but that that's still not a reason not to grapple with these these kinds of issues I and mean, um you know it, it's kind of it's pretty obvious frankly on the on the face of it um and uh, his lawyers did stellar work trying to argue otherwise but um but but really do seem to have been fighting a somewhat losing battle um, it, it does seem fairly obviously conducive to the public good that he's 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 no longer British when you've got such a low test. Um, but what what's curious about the case is that um, the the Court of Appeal goes down a road it's invited to to by the um, Secretary of State, which is suggesting that this person had been disloyal and therefore that was the obligate that he'd broken his obligation of loyalty, and therefore that was the basis on which he should be deprived of his citizenship. And I don't think they needed to make that argument. I mean, if, if all you've got to do is show that it's conducive to the public good, then the facts of the case fairly clearly establish that. You don't need to start talking about loyalty and stuff. But they did. Um, and arguably what they say is somewhat controversial. So the, the Court of Appeal say there is an obligation of loyalty. Their justification for that is is the, the feudal system of subjecthood that was abolished quite a long time ago now we've had citizenship since the 1948 act british subjects admittedly did continue to exist until the 1981 act but were scrapped at that point um it, it's very hard to see where there is an obligation of loyalty there's, there's also an interesting discussion around the treason laws which are still um on the statute book they're rather kind of outdated in the way that they're phrased dating back as they do to a a statute from the the 13th 1300s but um there's some interesting discussion around that as well and um i it's it's a bit of a subject that we've we've been banging on about or i've been banging on about on the blog um repeatedly in fact in 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 recent months we've seen quite a rise in the number of um, deprivation cases and there's likely to be a, a much steeper rise in the next few months and that's really for two reasons one is because um, the Home Office has accepted that the nullification process that it was previously using in as many as hundreds of cases a year is unlawful. That was a previous Supreme Court case that we don't need to go into now. But those oh, nullification... Sorry, sir? Using nullification as an alternative to deprivation because it was it was easier, essentially, was that it? Yeah, it, it, it's, and it's, it's hard to see what the Home Office thought it was doing, frankly, because the, it, it suddenly there's a huge spike in the number of nullifications around 2015, I think it is, um, and they've later conceded that they shouldn't have been doing that. They should have been using the deprivation process. And what's happened since then is that they've withdrawn all of those nullification decisions and they're considering whether to issue deprivation proceedings instead. So we'd expect to see an increase in the number of deprivation cases coming up over the next few months as they get their act together on that. Um, the other reason is is, is the um, Tory party conference where um, the Home Secretary Sajid David Javid said that he was planning on using the deprivation power more frequently and basically using it against serious criminals. Um, although, as we've pointed out on the blog, that's something that arguably the Home Office has already been doing with the um, the Aziz case in the Court of Appeal. That was the 
um, I think the Rochdale um, gang members who'd um, yeah. been convicted of some really horrible sexual abuse um, offences. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you're right. We pointed out that, you know, he framed it as something that was uh, entirely new that he was going to do. I think we pointed out it's, it's not entirely new, but as a, as a statement of political intent and direction of travel, I suppose it's it's quite strong. And as you say, um, you, you wouldn't be surprised to see a, an increase in practice of, of more criminals losing their citizenship. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And, um, you know, I think immigration lawyers ought to, it's a good time to be gemming up basically on on what the law is on deprivation, how the right of appeal works, what the grounds of appeal are. And happily enough, we've got a course all about those sorts of things on free movement. So if you if you are interested, then obviously take a look at the blog posts we're talking about, but also take a look at the course. Yep. Um, online training drop down on the homepage. Um, all our courses are there. Well reminded. Um, cool. So that was deprivation of citizenship. Um, another nationality issue that came up this month was not a legal judgment, but there was a, a sort of a public outcry over uh, a little boy called Mohammed Bangura, um, British born, aged six. He was visiting family in Belgium um, over the summer. But when they went to put him on the plane back to the UK, um, he was turned away because his passport had been revoked, his British passport. Um his mother said she knew nothing about this and, and the poor child was separated from his mother for, for certainly days, possibly weeks, um, while this was sorted out. Um, and that was that was high profile. Um, so we, we published an explainer on this. I mean, I think from what I gather from that, the justification for revoking this passport was that the Home Office just turned around and decided that he was never British after all and therefore wasn't entitled to it. Was that it? Yeah, it's and it's it feels really funny for for non-lawyers when this happens because it just seems so wrong. But I, I've seen quite a few cases in my own practice, and we've we've also um, written about. I think we think there have been um, over a thousand cases where EU nationals um, have had their children's British passports revoked after they've been issued, um, and it's because the passport is issued on the basis that you're a British citizen. But if it turns out you're not a British citizen and the Home Office made a mistake in thinking you were then basically you've got no basis for keeping that passport. And, and the Home Office, um, I know there is a slight exception to what I'm about to say with, with children, but basically the Home Office can't just say that you're British. Um, they can't, you know, the, the, there's no legal mechanism for them doing that. You can't just be declared British by the Home Office um, if, if they've made a mistake about whether you were entitled to be British in the first place. The, the, the exception to that is actually the Home Office kind of can do that with children. Um, the, there is a freestanding power that the children can register the home office can register any child as british um but usually that's on the basis of an application which has to be paid for the fees are very high and so on yeah it's a it's a strange story this one because it's um it was being characterized as being hostile environments and so on by by journalists and actually the reason for it is a really obscure um bit of of law in the british nationality act 1981 and it's section 50 capital a brackets nine which defines father in a certain way. And it, it says, for the purpose of this act, a child's father is, and it says, the, the husband at the time of the child's birth of the woman who gives birth to the child, or, and then it's got a couple of subsections dealing with um, Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act 1990 and so on, or um, then it goes on to C, where none of paragraphs A to B A applies a person who satisfies prescribed requirements as to paternity. And the the effect of that is that basically the father is always going to be, if the woman is married, the, the husband of the woman. 
and it's only if she's not married that some other person can be the father. And in this case, um, the woman was completely estranged, as I understand the the, the press reports from her um, husband, and he he you know he'd been off the scene for quite some time. Um, but because she was married, he was technically considered in British nationality law to be the father of the child, even though biologically he certainly wasn't. Um, so it, it's a really obscure provision, and just completely coincidentally, we'd, we'd actually seen a recent case on this, which I think you had to remind me of, CJ, slightly to my uh, slightly to my shame, um, in, in in which the the High Court had held that um, that provision was discriminatory. Um, and had issued a declaration of incompatibility under the Human Rights Act. So it's something that is, it was, I think it would be fair to say it was well considered by parliamentarians when it passed, as in the sense that they thought about it a lot. And at the time that the um, legislation was, was made and then amended, a lot of thought was given to it. But it hasn't really stood the test of time, basically, and it now seems pretty anachronistic. Yeah, so I suppose we'll have to see whether um, the Home Office does something about that declaration of incompatibility anytime soon, because there'll be more cases like this where um, children aren't getting the British nationality from their biological father that they, that they should. Yeah, and it's it's just that they're not getting it automatically. So you can make an application, you can apply for registration, and the Home Office policy on this in the nationality instructions quite clearly says that they, they, they can and will register where you present suitable proof of, of the biological father being British. Um, but it's not an automatic process. So if you gained your passport as if it was automatic and that turns out to be wrong, they'll take it away from you pending an application for the child to be registered. Fair enough. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one. Um, we should move on. Um, I know there was um, not a huge amount happening in Brexit last month, but there was uh, the big to do was to do with uh, if there's no deal, which is looking um, increasingly likely. No deal about uh, how the UK withdraws from the EU, and it's it's all a big mess. Come March 2019, um, we published a very useful summary of the position for. EU citizens living in the UK if that happens. So if there's no deal and you're a Spanish or a French national uh, living in the UK, what's your legal status? Are you all of a sudden uh, an illegal immigrant? Um, so the think tank UK and a Changing Europe posted a really useful summary and, and gave us permission to republish um, their uh, analysis. Uh, what was the gist of that then, Colin? And the gist is that basically if you're an EU citizen in the UK or a family member of an EU citizen, you're fine because even in the event of New Deal, sorry, New Deal, No Deal, the um, Withdrawal Act 2018 um, essentially protects people's position um, in the event of an, an, a No Deal situation arising. It preserves in law the Immigration European Economic Area Regulations 2016, and it does give the government the power to amend those over time, um, which power, I guess they, they sort of had to some extent anyway, although they still had to be compatible with with EU law before Brexit. But certainly there's no immediate illegality or anything like that. And people wouldn't need to have made an application by Brexit. So there's no desperate hurry or, or, or anything of that nature. And the, the, the people who need to be worried are UK citizens in the EU um, because their status is very uncertain and they're essentially um, re relying on each of the other 27 member states of the EU to um, regularise their position in some way, which just isn't going to happen, basically. You know, all those EU countries have got other things to be doing than worrying about UK nationals who, who, whose situation has been sacrificed by their own 
country's decision to leave the EU, essentially. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for a deal um, to protect people's positions to some extent. Um, Asylum, then. We wanted to talk about some case law uh, to do with uh, refugees. And one of them was um, a case in the Scottish courts, um, TF and MA, uh, 2018 CSIH 58, um, CSIH being the Court of Session in her house. And this was a case about applying for asylum after a surplus conversion to Christianity, I think I'm right in saying, um, which is converting to Christianity while in the UK and then saying, well, I can't go back to Iran, as I think it was in this case, because I'll now be persecuted for my religion. Um, I think our interest in this case was because the Court of Session took a slightly different approach to such cases than, than we're used to seeing. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I, I'm, I'm quite interested in these cases and I have been for a, for a long time. And um, I've actually been doing quite a, a few of them recently as well, because um, I, I, I'm based in, in Bristol now and um, take on a few cases in Newport. And uh, there are some pretty convincing um, evangelical preachers in South Wales, it turns out, who, uh, who've been recruiting um, from the, the ranks of asylum seekers. So there have been quite a few of these cases going to the, the tribunal in Newport. Um, it's an interesting one because it's just it's it's relatively unusual to see these kinds of decisions get up to the the higher courts and and there's a, a couple of sort of key takeaways from it one is that um the court of inner house the the, the court session in a house so it's equivalent to the court of appeal basically in in england and wales um says that it's not really necessary and it's not necessarily a good idea even for the minister of a particular church to be attending to give evidence and what really matters is that it's somebody who knows the person well and can speak to the practices at the church and the way that the church operates and that kind of thing. Because you know, if, if you're talking about a big church with a congregation of hundreds or you know, I've, I've come across churches with congregations of thousands, it, you know, getting the minister to come along isn't actually going to be a particularly valuable exercise in, in, in genuine evidence, frankly. And they, they, they can act as a figurehead. Sorry, say again? The evidence they're giving would be about the genuineness of genuineness of the person's conversion is that it yeah i know and, and if, if if the minister doesn't know the person very well then they can't really speak to that and um, what what's better is if you've got um somebody who, who's fairly senior in the in, in the church perhaps but but doesn't have to be who who knows that person well and can, can give evidence on their behalf and preferably several of them and it's one of those situations where definitely having more witnesses is better than having few witnesses um, so it's quite interesting from that point of view, and it, it um, there's an old case called Derodian, um, which which is old and hasn't necessarily aged very well, but was one of the the first cases dealing with these kind of surplus conversion situations, um, and it was suggested in that case, amongst other things, that um, the minister should turn up, and I think um, the, the the judge also suggested that judges should be using their judicial knowledge to quiz asylum seekers about Christianity and, and, and so on, which, which really it's just not how things are done in the, the modern age. So Drosian hasn't, it's really not a case that's, that's aged all that well. Um, the, the court session also suggests that that evidence given by members of the congregation um, would be considered to be expert evidence as well. Now, I, th- I think that's something that perhaps has more impact in Scotland than it does in England and Wales. So, I mean, immigration judges um, are certainly used to hearing from members of congregation and so on. I don't think there's any particular issue about whether it amounts to expert evidence or not, or there's any particular significance, really, that's attached to whether it's technically speaking expert evidence or not. 
Um, but the, the, other, the other thing that's good about the case is that it is urging a holistic approach on the tribunal and that really it's important to look at um, all of the circumstances, all of the facts, and to remember that some people might lie about one thing, but that doesn't mean that they're lying about everything. Um, so it's it, it's quite a useful, quite an enlightened um, case. One one thing that I think is is missing from it, which I think is quite actually, it's, it's actually quite an important and quite a difficult issue in these kind of conversion cases, is you know sometimes you, you'd be um, acting on behalf of somebody who is a fairly long-standing convert. They've got a record of going along to services over a prolonged period of time. They've already been baptized and so on. Other times uh, I found myself acting for somebody who is relatively recent, hasn't been baptized. Is is their, conver- yeah, their conversion may be genuine, but is it genuine and lasting? What is the test that you should apply? And is it of such seriousness? Is their religion, new religion, of such seriousness to them that um, if it, it can be a good foundation for an asylum claim. And there is a sort of ready-made answer to that, which comes from a case called FG against Sweden. Uh, and it's it's a Strasbourg case, application number 43611 slash 11, 23rd of March 2016. And it's quoting other authorities like Aweda and others against the United Kingdom, where it suggests that the question the authorities have to ask themselves in a surplus conversion case is whether the person's conversion was genuine and had attained a certain level of cogency, seriousness and cohesion and importance. And I think that's got quite a useful sort of um, test to apply in these kind of situations. Super. Uh, helpful resource. Um, we will. Uh, there's another case we wanted to talk about, which was um, an upper tribunal case this time, uh, HA and others. Um, 2018 UKUT 297 IAC. Um, and this one was about whether you can rely on the right to family unity um, under the Dublin 3 regulation. Um, and that's the regulation deciding which country processes an asylum claim in the EU. Um, whether you can rely on the family unity right in that if you're a former refugee rather than uh, someone with current refugee status. Have I, have I completely garbled that or is it that about No, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. And it's, it's a weird set of facts. It's not a set of facts that arises very often. But this is somebody who had arrived in the UK quite a long time ago, I think back in 2005, and they'd become British in the meantime. And they were trying to sponsor, he was trying to sponsor his wife and his child to come to the UK. And his child had actually been born... Um, a lot later, he'd managed to visit his wife abroad. The child had been born as a result of that visit in December 2013 and was almost certainly British, although that's not actually, I think, formally conceded by the Home Office in this case, strangely. So he, he's got a, a British child and he's got a wife who, on the face of it, has the same characteristics as him that led him to be a refugee. He's actually a stateless bidoon from Kuwait. Um, and they, they have good asylum cases, you know, they're, they're basically fairly obviously refugees in a lot of cases. So he couldn't sponsor her under the UK's refugee family reunion rules because he was no longer a refugee because he'd become a British citizen. And um, I, to my sorrow, I argued a case about this um, back in the day um, called MS Somalia. And we, we lost that. And following that, they amended the rules to to prevent that from, from happening in future as well. Um, and um, because he couldn't sponsor her... Um, and he couldn't go and live with her in Kuwait because he's a refugee from that country. Um, he, he, they ended up basically the wife and child ended up um, take, under, undertaking the dangerous Mediterranean crossing. Luckily, they survived. You know, we know that a lot of people don't. 
Um, they managed to reach Greece and they applied for asylum there. Greece rather reasonably um, asked the UK to accept um, the, the claim and for it to be transferred to the UK because they had family members in the UK. And, and the UK just fighting this tooth and nail all the way, standing on you know, really precise, um, very unhelpful definitions of, of, of law to try and keep them out. And you just have to ask yourself, why? What, what, what official thought at the Home Office thought that this was a case where they had to fight it tooth and nail and stop this family from being reunited in this country? And, and it's, it, it's one of those cases where you just wonder, you know, what, what is really going on at the Home Office, frankly? Yeah, sounds, sounds dreadful. Is there a um, practice point to take away from that one? Um, I think it's useful to, this is a case where, I, I don't know if he was legally represented, but if he if he had been, he would have stood a decent, he would have stood a decent chance of winning a refugee family reunion application outside the rules, um, if there had been an appeal, certainly. So you, you'd expect to be refused by the Home Office, because the Home Office always refuse applications outside the rules, or almost always. Um, but an appeal against that, I'd have, th- I'd have thought, would have stood a very strong chance of success, and that would have... That going down that road would have stopped his wife and child from being placed in danger, having to, to try and reach um, Europe by other means. OK, a couple of uh, bits of asylum news we um, will try to rattle through. Um, one of them is a new type of leave, um, leave to remain in the UK for children that were re- uh, resettled from Calais. Um, and they have called it appropriately enough Calais leave. Um, what, what does that do? Who does that apply to? Uh, I'm, I'm starting to lose track of dubs and Calais and, and things like that. But basically, um, when, when the um, jungle camp was being cleared in 2016, 2017, the UK very reluctantly um, accepted a certain number of children who were transferred to the UK to have their asylum claims decided. Some of them had family links to the UK, some of them didn't. And this is kind of the final step in making sure that um, they have their leave recognised. And it, it seems to be related to a case that the, that the Home Office had lost um, just a few weeks before, um, where they'd basically put a lot of these cases on hold indefinitely for reasons that are just completely unclear. Um, and it, it's now clear that if they don't get refugee status, then at least they'll be granted Calais leave, as it's going to be known. OK, so some some good news there, it sounds like. Um, the uh, final thing on asylum was that there was a report from the immigration inspector, uh, David Bolt. He re-inspected how the Home Office processes family reunification applications. Oh, sorry, my uh, phone is beeping there. Um, the, so he re-inspected the uh, process of family reunification and I think, Colin, he said things sort of moving in the right direction, but a whole lot that the Home Office just hasn't bothered to do. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's interesting watching David Bolt's journey as the new chief inspector from however long ago it was when he took over from John Vine, where um, you know, he decided that he was going to take a much more low-profile approach and uh, try and engage in, constructively with the Home Office and so on. And um, one starts to get the impression that he, he feels that's not really working and that basically he's writing these reports. The Home Office sits on them for months before publishing them. They publish eight or ten of them at the same time so that there's zero media impact. And then they don't do anything about the recommendations. And you start to get the feeling with some of the phrasing in, in, in this report, particularly in some of the other recent reports, that he's getting pretty frustrated by this because the Home Office just failing to to do anything about these you know quite careful recommendations that he's drawn up and um in in some areas you know that these will be relatively minor improvements with no immediate impact or whatever but refugee family reunion is a big thing for the people it affects it is it, huge and life-changing and the home office is just totally failing to 
to get on with it and implement the changes that it's agreed to make. Yeah, you can. You can. His frustration really comes across in the diplomatic language that you know um, officials tend to write these reports. It, it nevertheless, he he makes some sort of strong statements of, of frustration. Um, um, we have just three more cases we wanted to touch on. Um, two of them were, were to do with uh, deportation. Um, the first one comes to us from Doughty Street Chambers. Uh, Lord Minsky and Alison Pickup were involved in a, a detention case called Lausicus. Um, we've written about it before. Um, but this was a sort of uh, side issue, I suppose, to, to the detention claim. I think it was to do with um, a ban on employment that the Home Office put on their client. And they have posted on the Dow Street website a consent order um, that they've obtained in, in this litigation. And I think it seems to be good news, basically. Yeah, and it's basically it's standard practice at the Home Office where they're trying to deport um, an EU national that they'll also prevent them from working. And it, it's automatic, or it has been automatic in the past. And in this case, um, the Home Office is conceding that they shouldn't be doing that. It's got to be a proportionate decision. And basically, they uh, there's a strong argument they, they don't really have the, uh, the right to do that in a lot of cases. So um, I, I think in, in terms of things in practice to be aware of it's basically if you do have a client who has these restrictions imposed on them uh, an eu client um, then challenge it and um, hopefully litigation won't be necessary with this rather useful authority but you know if it is necessary then um, then you stand a good chance excellent uh, very succinct very helpful um the other uh, deportation case was um Brought to us from uh, Bilal, one of our contributors. This was one of his own cases. Um, this is up in Scotland again. The Home Office attempted to deport a Polish man who had permanent residence uh, under EU law. He had committed some fairly petty drug offences, I think we, we consider to do with, to do with cannabis. Um, the case is Goralkis, um, 2018 CSIH60. Yeah, I'm glad you tried to pronounce that rather than me. Um, I, I'm going to put on, I'm going to put on my judge voice because I think the the opening lines are worth worth quoting. So, it is one thing when the state seeks to withdraw a permission or privilege is a very different matter when it seeks to interfere with an individual's rights. Privileges are precarious in the absence of good reason to the contrary. Rights should be secure, and and that's a that's a great opening wow. to a judgment, isn't it? Um, and it's um, yeah, it, it's it's another example of an EU deportation case. Um, the the offence was pretty minor. It was a cannabis dealing offence, and not a big scale one or anything like that. Um, and it, and this guy was really I kind of expect them to be really badly let down by the Home Office, who who, who increasingly pursuing deportation against EU citizens in in really you know minor offence cases. Um, but but you expect the first tier tribunal to stand firm and apply the law properly, and they, they he was badly let down by the first tier tribunal and also the upper tribunal in this case and um, the the Scottish Court of Session uh, equivalent to the Court of Appeal in England and Wales uh, really goes to town on the first tier tribunal and the upper tribunal here and tells them they 've got the law completely wrong, um, approach this in completely the wrong way and um, yeah it 's a really good result for the client and it 's a reminder that it is quite hard for the Home Office to deport in EU cases. Um, the offence has to be you know, a significant one, particularly where the person has been resident um, for quite a long time. So this guy had been here for nine years, so he had permanent residence, and the test is therefore higher. It's serious grounds of public policy or public security. Um, and also there was no risk of reoffending in this case either. Um, the, the, the one bit of evidence that was on reoffending said that he was a low risk of reoffending. So the Home Office really shouldn't have been pursuing action in the first place. The tribunal should really have dismissed the attempts to pursue action. And it's a shame that it took this guy so long um, to, to, to have his rights upheld in the, in the court of session. 
you know, ne- nevertheless, there might well be other clients out there in, in similar positions, uh, even though they shouldn't be. So that might be a useful authority. Um, the final case uh, we wanted to touch on was to do with human rights. Um, this one is actually from earlier in the summer, but we, we only got around to covering it in September. Uh, SL St. Lucia, uh, 2018 EWCA Civ 1894. Um, now, this was about the important European Court of Human Rights decision in Papashvili, which I think was last year, um, and the effect it has on domestic law. Um, and I think the killer quote from the judgment was, I am entirely unpersuaded that Papashvili has any impact on the approach to Article 8 claims. Discuss. Yeah, and, and that says it all really, doesn't it? I mean, it, we, we've reported it because it is useful to know these things and what arguments have succeeded or failed, but this is definitely an argument that's failed. Um, Papishvili, it's all about the um, threshold of um, Article 3 in medical treatment cases and so on, and, and basically... It, it's a case where it's saying nothing to see here in terms of Article 8. So so I, I think we can probably leave that one there. Fair enough. Good, useful to know, nevertheless. Um, Grace, I think that's yeah. us. Yeah, I think that's us done for this month. So thank you very much, CJ, for, for helping out. And um, yeah, if you've been listening, I, I would be very interested to get some feedback on whether that kind of slightly more conversational style works for you. And uh, let us know in the comments or, or drop us a line. Goodbye.